Um, have you ever heard someone ask for prayer for something, and you're like, I'm not even sure if we could pray for that? Has that ever, like, crossed your mind? Just, you know, like, well, I don't know. Does God really even, like, care to that level? Uh, John Christ, I don't, you guys, he's a, co a comedian. We showed a, a video about him, uh, or that he did about praying and blessing your food and stuff. But he has a whole bit in the middle of one of his uh, comedy routines where he talks about this idea, this idea of, like, he's like, I ain't praying for that. I don't, I don't know if I'm supposed to pray for that. And he's like, you know, there's like, like, uh, he has a, he talks about an example of uh, a guy who comes up and there's a hurricane coming to uh, where his beach house is, you know, and he, he's like, can you pray that the hurricane just goes around my beach house? And, you know, and he's like, dear Lord, I pray for uh, this guy, you know, and his, his beach house. I know you said build your house on the rock and he did the opposite, but you know, like, how, how do you pray for those things? So he's like, also, a mom came up to me one time and was like, can you pray for my kid? Um, he's in karate and he's in the finals tomorrow. And it's like, can you pray? Like, Lord, please direct his foot to the other kid's face. You know, hey, you know render him unconscious, Lord. You know, like, can you pray those types of prayers? Like, how do you pray for those things? But one of the things that gets me is when he does his example prayer every time, he's like, Lord, please bless and be with all the orphans, widows, and missionaries. And you remember Skyler? You know, he's in karate. But I think we get held up there, right? Like, sometimes we don't pray for certain prayers um, because we... We feel like they don't matter enough, right? Or like, you know, if we're praying for orphans and widows and missionaries, why would we pray for Skyler and his karate? Right? And we get hung up there. Um, Tyler Statton in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, which is the, the book we're using as a guide for this series, he shares an example um, of this in his own life. And I really enjoyed it, so I'm going to read it kind of to you. But... Um, he, he talks about that he was out with his whole family around the holiday season in his mother-in-law's um, big SUV, and it's packed full with their family, and they're driving through a parking lot trying to find a spot to park, and she just needs to run in and return an item real quick, you know? And so she goes, dear Lord, can you give us a parking spot up close? And he starts to have this internal monologue going on where he's like, are you kidding me? Like, we're operating this unnecessarily large vehicle for reasons I assume are aesthetic, right? Despite the well-known fact that vehicles of this size overconsume the limited natural resources, and you have the audacity to plead help from the God who created the world that we're thoughtlessly plundering, right? We're waiting approximately an extra 120 seconds to walk inside and exchange a few garments we don't need anyways, Right? We're gonna, you're going to ask the God whose arrival provoked the command that anyone who has two shirts should share one with the one who has none, and then you're going to go pick out something more tasteful for your overstocked closet? With a straight face, you're going to ask God to bend the arc of the universe in the direction of your shopping convenience, where 690 million people are going hungry today, and we're going to let the leftovers of our overflowing holiday fridge go bad? Don't you think God is too busy addressing the hunger pangs of those, of those people to worry about how long our wait is going to be for the shopping mall? Tyler goes on to say that while he was kind of lost in his internal monologue, he was interrupted by his mother-in-law's voice saying, yes, there's one. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> right? I, I think we get hung up on this, right? The, the asking part of prayer and asking for the little things that sometimes don't seem like it should be enough. But Jesus insists on us asking. Jesus insists on both prayers to end world hunger and prayer for parking spaces. And he wouldn't have it any other way. 
right? Because right in the middle of a prayer as cosmic and big as hallowed be your name, as apocalyptic as your kingdom come or as contrite as forgive us or as spiritual as deliver us from the evil one, Jesus includes the unavoidably practical and circumstantial and immediate give us today our daily bread. Prayer at its simplest and most straightforward way is just asking God for help. But often we get stuck in like, is there guidelines to this help that, that we can ask for or should we ask for? Surely there's some requests that go up to God that are too selfish or too impractical that God would just laugh them off. Right? Where does my will stop and God's will begin? How do I ask in a way that's in line with God's perspective? What is worth praying about and what's just regular life? And at the end of the day, does Jesus really care about parking spaces? We're in our series, Prayer, talking about an invitation to the wonder and the mystery of prayer. Last week, we discussed that, that um, what does it mean when we pray, your kingdom come, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We talked about prayer being intercession or standing in the gap between the things that are in need on earth and people and the, and the world around us and the resources we have in heaven and standing in that gap and bringing those resources down to earth. We should be praying for our children workers right now. Um, might be a need. Um, it's probably crying more because they heard us laugh. Um, Right? We, we talked about how if our prayers from our, from our past week were answered, how would your life and the lives around you actually change? So on that point, how many of you guys did the Dangerous, uh, dangerous Prayers Bible study with us over this past week? I know there's quite a few of you guys in there. Um, did you enjoy that? Was it challenging? Yeah, I found it really challenging, so I just stopped after day two. Um, no, I, I went all the way through. Um, if you haven't done day seven yet, it's today, and then, uh, then it's over, and you can start it back up, because I, I think there's a lot of things that we could easily overlook and miss and keep digging deeper in the, the idea of praying bigger prayers. So, um, But today's message is titled, Daily Bread. And our main verse is from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, verse 11, that says, Give us today our daily bread. Jesus illustrates for us through his prayer that he just uses everyday language, right? Which we'll see more as we go through this message, but he uses real and earthy language, honest, everyday words that, that everybody knew at that time, right? To us, it feels like when he says, give us today our daily bread, this like, this super spiritual thing. But the reality was that's what they ate on the daily, especially, you know, for that meal was just like, give us our meal today, provide for us. Christians today, we tend to fill our prayers with euphemisms and phrases only heard between the dear God and the amen, right? We have like a different prayer language, right? It's been passed on from uh, probably different pulpits, from grandparents to your small group leaders and all these different ways we've, we've made a new language, right? And this includes the Lord's Prayer. Like often we pray the Lord's Prayer because it's, it's in the scripture, but we don't even fully understand the words that are behind it because it's not a language we use in our day-to-day -day life, right? Some of you pray, give us our daily bread, but you're trying to cut carbs, right? Like, yeah, I, I don't actually want daily bread, you know, or I'm, I'm gluten-free. Well, I, I can't even pray that prayer, right? Maybe you need to pray daily celery, right? 
But there's a lot of phrases that I find that are interesting that in scripture, one of my favorite, or in, in people's prayer languages, one of my favorite phrases that I heard growing up is that when people prayed for a hedge of protection, right? I, I don't know about you, but I could probably use more than like a bush to protect me from the devil. And um, like, I can get through a bush, right? It'll, it'll be a little scratched up. And not to get political, but I'd be like, Lord, build a wall of protection, right? Around me, you know? infinitely tall and impenetrable wall of protection, Lord. Like, that's a language I understand it would want more, right? Do you, do you guys remember the cartoon movie, Over the Hedge? Yeah, it came out um, roughly around when I was graduating high school. And I had some friends who were roughly the same age as me who thought it was a Christian movie because the only time they had heard the word hedge before was in prayer. And they thought this was like some Christian movie, like evil animals getting through our hedge of protection and taking us down. Because um, it's some weird stuff, right? Like, why do we pray in things like that? Jesus was actually inviting us to pray in common language that we would hear at restaurants or the coffee shops or in business meetings, right? Or over drinks with a friend. That's how he wants us to communicate. When the language we use in our prayers stays grounded, our prayers stay grounded. Ordinary language keeps us from lofty prayers that, that usher the activity of God into some like far off imaginative place. Instead, when we use that common language, it invites God into our here and our now, into the concerns of today. You know, the, the basics of what will I eat, what will I do, who am I going to meet today, right? How am I feeling today? On earth as it is in heaven prayers, right? Daily bread prayers. And Jesus just rips prayer kind of out of the, the sacred stained glass, you know, ornate church walls that we think of, of how prayer should be prayed when he starts using all this common language. Prayer is not the ascent of the soul to some other place, but it deals directly with our basic needs and wants. Prayer is about the demands, the obligations, and the privileges of this very day. Man, Jesus was all about showing us that we need to be okay with the common life around us, that we live more in the common than we do in the extraordinary. He was always on the, the religious elite, those the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the, the priests and the scribes for dressing up too much, for making things too much of a show or using lofty languages. Jesus used everyday stuff in his teachings, in his prayers, and in his miracles. If you remember his very first miracle, the, the water to wine at the wedding of Cana, he used the, the, the bowls that he used to fill up with water to turn to wine were just hand-washing bowls. Right? Common, everyday things that everybody had. I think that we often do not share our real prayer requests because we don't think they are worth praying about, especially to the bigger prayer requests out there, right? The bigger prayer requests. But that will eventually turn into you just not even praying for them on your own when God has asked us to. When we effortlessly judge the parking space prayers of others, like we know the priorities of an incomprehensible God, right? our, our spiritual lives are suffocated. They're restricted. While the God of those people who are willing to pray prayers for everything, God, that God is ever involved. He's interested and he's present in every moment of their life. If we only pray for the big things, we are limiting our conversations with God, right? We end up living cramped spiritual lives with little room for actual God of Jesus to come and meet us. Now, gratitude is the God-given reward for those who can stomach praying for all the small things. 
Tyler Statton in his book goes on to explain that while his mother-in-law was pulling into that parking spot that God gave her, she was full of gratitude and he was full of bitterness. Theologian Gustave Gutierrez says, the basic diet of a healthy soul consists of prayer, justice, and gratitude. Tyler Statton, um, expounding on his uh, internal monologue through this problem, says, it's possible, though I think quite unlikely, that I had a proper view of justice and a considerable point about prayer in the back and forth volley of my own internal monologue. But my soul was shriveled and weak from the lack of gratitude while my mother-in-law's was healthy and expansive. There is a pathway to gratitude hidden in prayer, and it's found in our daily bread. Ask and keep asking. Ask for big, ask for small things. Kingdom come and also grace before supper. And when we pray the Jesus way, keeping our prayers common as our everyday small talk, we put one foot in front of the other on the pathway of gratitude. Right? Now, prayer is not all flowers and unicorns and rainbows and la-da-da stuff up there, right? The daily bread variety of prayer is also a battle cry. Right? It's a declaration of war against one of our soul's fiercest enemies. And that enemy is control. Every last one of us lives with this insatiable desire to get control over our own lives. Right? As this inescapable attraction to that original lie that you can be your own God. Like every variety of fallenness, every variety of our sin, every variety of our you know, mistakes through our lives, control is just a good desire that has gone wrong. It's out of order. Control is a surface-level symptom of something at a soul level, a God-given desire for fruitfulness. And when we read through Scripture, we're called to bear fruit, right? And, and we feel that if we're not able to do it, if we have to trust in something else for it to happen, I mean, wouldn't it just be easier if I just took control and forced that fruit out of me, right? We want to live lives that matter, that make a difference in our world, in our families, in our friends, to matter both in a personal and a profound way, right? And when we clench our jaws and put that desire to action on our own, we end up exhausted and overwhelmed. Do you know that the the millennial generation is considered to be the most socially conscious, globally-minded, justice-oriented generation in the most recent history? But at the same time, that same generation is the most mentally ill and chronically unhappy, right? a generation of people doing exactly what they want with their lives and trying to be out there forcing good and fruitfulness, right? Channeling, channeling energy freely into those chosen pursuits of global good, yet they are completely overwhelmed, utterly exhausted, and chronically unhappy. Those are what the symptoms are of a good desire out of order. Many of us have an internal monologue that goes something like this, right? God, I, I want to live a fruitful, meaningful life but I'm just not sure I can trust God to do that, right? I can trust him as the answer to all my big theological questions, but I'm not sure if I can trust him with my dreams, my hopes, and my plans. I can trust him ultimately, but I doubt I can trust him immediately. So I'm white-knuckling my life with everything I've got, micromanaging my surroundings, my perception, and my next step. Does that sound familiar to any of you? When we trust God, with our worldview, but we don't trust him with our current experience inside of that world, we are falling victim to the lure of control. How many of us are exhausted, overwhelmed, chronically anxious, 
full of worry because we're trying to satisfy good desires by the wrong means. Scripture shows that fruitfulness only comes from a relationship with Jesus. Right? John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and you must remain in me to bear good fruit. And Jesus teaches us to include in our prayers the phrase, give us. Right? Daily, as we ask, he weans us off our addiction to independence and our insistence on living under the illusion that what we most deeply desire, we can feed ourselves all on our own. Right? When we have to go to God to ask for everything and we go to him daily to ask, it's saying, God, I'm not in control. It's all up to you. Our requests are not the spoiled whinings of a child or the, the shaking cup of a beggar before God. Daily bread prayers are a daily reminder that we're just not in charge. We're not in control. Prayer replaces control with trust. A God-given desire is only fulfilled by God-given means. There's a very interesting story in John 5. Uh, Jesus is approaching this ritual bathing pool that... Uh, somehow is considered to have these special healing powers. There was this belief that an angel came down every once in a while and stirred this pool that they had. And, and you could tell that because the water would bubble. And then the first person to get into that pool when the water bubbled would be healed. Now, like, there's no other proof than scripture just referencing that that was a belief at the time. But that pool is called the Pool of Bethsaida. Uh, you've probably heard of that before. But Jesus shows up at this pool and there's all these people in, in sick that are sick and in need of healing and stuff laying around this pool waiting for the pool to be stirred. And uh, he encounters a man who was disabled for 38 years who's just waiting there for the water to bubble. And Jesus goes up to him in verse 6 of John 5 and says, it says, when Jesus saw him and he knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? What a question to ask. Right? I mean, it's kind of tender and sweet because, like, it's Jesus. And he's like, man, I want to I I hear you. I want to hear from your heart. I want to know how you're feeling. But, like, at the same time, it's kind of completely unnecessary, right? I mean, look at him being disabled for 38 years, sitting right next to the pool where, like, this myth is healing comes from. Do you think that maybe you didn't need to ask? Right? Could you imagine being in, like, a horrible accident? Right? And you're like, you're laying there like bloody and broken. And you're staring at your arm 10 feet away from you. And uh, the, the EMT shows up and walks over to you and is like, hey, how you doing, man? You're like, well, you know, it's been a little bit of a rough day. And, uh, you know, they're like, well, would you like, would you like some help? Would you like to get well? You know, you're like, I wish I could nod my head yes, but I'm paralyzed. No, uh, right, like, it, it's so crazy to me that Jesus would ask that question. Right? It's even more unnecessary by the fact that Jesus is the image of the all-knowable God. Right? The, the one who knows what we need before we ask him, and that's what Jesus said about him. So when Jesus says to that man, do you want to get well? It's really that he's saying, I want to hear you say it. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly poses the question that in, poses questions that invite people to ask him for what they really want. Before acting... Jesus searches for consent. I've always heard it explained that God is a gentleman, right? And people are always like, I just don't understand why God doesn't just like bust in like the Kool-Aid man and make things happen, right? Like he could just fix all the things. He'd just show up and fix all these things. But I was told like God is a gentleman. He doesn't just come in. He wants to be asked. 
He wants consent to come into your life and, and fix all the things that, that you're going through. And so we need, just like this man who is obviously desperate for healing, had to go to Jesus and say, yeah, I, I do want healed. Charles Spurgeon, who's considered one of the, the greatest sermon writers of all times, he points out in a sermon that this rule applied to Jesus himself as well. So why wouldn't it apply to us? Because in Psalm 2, 7 through 8, it says, The king proclaims the Lord's decree. And the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. Right? This is this poetic picture of God, the father, talking to Jesus, his son. And in verse 7, it says, Only ask, and I'll give you the nations. So why is God so bent on us asking? Right? If he knows what we need before we ask him, why does he want us to ask him? And at first and at most, it's because God desires relationship with us. But that's what he created us for at the very beginning, right? It began with relationship. Even before he created all of the earth that we see and live in today, there was a perfect relationship of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, creation is born out of the abundant overflow of that loving relationship. The closest parallel I think that we have on earth to understand God's desire to create humans is like a, a happily married couple so overjoyed with their union that they decide to have a baby, right? Wouldn't it be amazing if a little bit of you and a little bit of me made a completely free and independent being so that the love we share could be expressed and channeled towards someone else? Right? That's like the best way we could describe what happened when God decided to create earth. And, you know, just like our own kids, they mess up a whole lot, make a lot of messes. You know, we, we're just living up to what we thought it was going to be, you know. Heaven in the end time at its simplest, guys, is just eternity with God with no work left to do. It will just be you and him. God's end game is just to be with you forever and to enjoy you and you to enjoy him. Now, as most of you guys probably know and have probably heard that communication is essential for a relationship. And asking is one of the most major parts of communication. Right? It's because it builds trust. It's, it's a very vulnerable state to go to someone and ask for anything. And that's what builds that trust and builds a deeper relationship because it, it shows trust. And then you receive trust when they come back with an answer. And when you ask for anything, right, you risk rejection. You risk disappointment at least. And until we ask God for something, he can't disappoint or surprise us. Right? We cannot build trust with God without asking. We can't relate to God if we never ask. Without asking, God is something less than a free relational being. Right? He becomes just a machine delivering our desires, sometimes even before we're conscious of them. Now, asking is the means by which we build relationship with God as he designed us to enjoy. Jesus told a story about prayer that was surprising, surprisingly ordinary and irreverent. In Luke 11, 5 through 8, it says, Then, teaching them about, more about prayer, this is Jesus speaking, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, A friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, Don't bother me, the door is locked for the night. Right? My family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, 
Though he won't do it for your friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he'll get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. This story at face value sometimes seems just too common for the, the mystical action, the mystical uh, stuff we put upon prayer. Right? But this story, straight from Jesus' imagination, illustrates, illustrates petition. This story is relational. Right? As comfortably relational as ringing the neighbor's door for some extra buns when you've already started a barbecue and realize you forgot to buy enough. Right, or that cup of sugar you need because you're halfway through baking and you can't finish your recipe without it. Right, that's the kind of relationship God wants us to have with him, to ask him for our most basic, simplest of needs. Talking to God is not an awkward meeting with some like old, white-bearded monk and you have to come up with something like really profound to say or he's going to turn you away. Right, prayer is just casual small talk, like asking a friend for something you need. Asking is the experience of prayer at its most relational. Now, relationship is God's end plan, but empowerment along the way is what gets us there. Jesus did not merely come to redeem the world, but to invite the likes of us, you know, these, us fallen men and women, to participate in the same very redemption that he is in process of carrying out. There's perhaps no greater means of empowerment than being able to ask God for things. In Exodus 32, we get a glimpse into Moses' prayer life. And to, to set the stage for this verse in a second, God is very, very frustrated with the Israelites, God's people at the time. And his frustration is very validated. And he's kind of thrown out like, oh, I think I'm just going to get rid of you all. Because he's very frustrated. And this is why, right? God had just freed them from slavery, delivered them from an army by splitting a sea, carrying them through it. They're in the middle of the desert, and every day they wake up to bread for the day. When they complained about the bread, God gave them meat. Right? They got, they got water from rocks. And now they have chosen to worship a different God. So God's very frustrated. And in verse uh, 12 and 13 of Exodus 32, Moses' prayer says, Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give them all this land that I have promised to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. Right? Moses is just holding God to his own word. He's reminding God of who God is. He's like, you bound yourself to an oath, don't forget. It's more like reminding God of what God really wants. Right? And we pray prayers like this. You've probably heard someone say when they're praying for healing for someone that God, you are the healer or the great physician or, or different words along the line. right? Or in a prayer for provision, God, remember you are our provider. Right? We're calling on the character of God before submitting our requests. Right? So look what happened in verse 14. It says, so the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. God changed his mind because of a human being, right? just because of Moses. God was emotionally moved by his servant Moses. Right? God hears us. Do you really believe that he hears you, that you have the ability to change something within God, to, to stir him to act on your behalf? Right? God doesn't just listen. God doesn't just hear. God responds 
Right now, this idea of God may feel a little radical for you. And I think that's because we have an idea of God that's often a view of him being unmovable. Right? That we, it doesn't matter whether we pray or not because it doesn't change the outcome of things. And it is hard to understand and it is hard to comprehend because God is, lives outside of everything we could ever try to comprehend. He is so much bigger than our, our finite beings here. But we even find in scripture, like Malachi 3.6, is the Lord declaring, I am the Lord, and I do not change. Right? We're like, well, that scripture says that he doesn't change, so how does this work? But then in Hosea 11, it's, um, God is complaining to, or God is declaring to Hosea, he says, my heart is changed within me, all my compassion overflows. Right? So at the same time as God declares he cannot change, it's also God declaring, my heart has changed. How can both of these revelations of God be equally true? And part of this is because God is a relational being to know, and he's not a formula to master. I do find it interesting that when God says, I am the Lord and I do not change, was actually about him not wanting to destroy his people. The tendency in our modern churches is to strip the Bible of mystery. Because we want black and white. It's easier to live when you know exactly how it should happen. But the reality is, is God doesn't live there. God's not even defined or held back by the laws of the earth we live in. Right? We can't expect black and white things out of that God. Right? We want to reduce the scripture to abstract principles. Right? The tendency is to read something like Exodus 32 and think, wow. Moses and God had something really special, right? Like Moses is a superstar, right? He's one of the superstars of the, the Old Testament. And so he just had like VIP access to God. You know, he had like, like he, we, you know, he, he was like the elite member. So he got extra perks, like more answers to prayer, you know, or like you get five times a year that you get to change God's mind, Right. Like, but that, it's funny as it is, we view that, right? We're like, well, that was Moses praying. Right? How many times have you read scripture and you see something like that and you're like, well, that was just because that's them. Right? One of my favorite scriptures, and I think we've already shared it here, talking about Elijah, he, he, he calls down like, there's, he prayed for a drought and a drought happened for years because he's like, the king doesn't listen to you, God. I'm going to tell him that there's going to be a drought and I'm going to pray the drought to happen and the drought happens. Right? And then, Everything goes down as planned. He's like, all right, God, we need it to rain. And he sees a tiny little cloud coming, and he's like, the rain is coming. Right? And there's a, a, a scripture in the New Testament. I think it's First uh, Peter. But uh, <laughs> he's talking about Elijah. He's like, Elijah prayed these prayers that, that changed, like, the climate. And it goes on to say, Elijah is just an ordinary man, like you and I. And, like, we have to remember that. Right, we have to remember that the Bible is not a book telling us how people used to relate to God. Right, it's a historical record of God's interactions with his people that set the foundation and the expectation for God's interaction with us. God cares so much about us that he is moved emotionally by our prayers. And this wasn't just Moses. Like I said, it was Elijah, it was Abraham. Abraham convinced God to not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah or tried to, and they couldn't find enough people. But he had this whole back and forth relationship with God. Jacob wrestled with God until he blessed him. 
And then when Jesus walked on the earth, he was constantly moved with compassion to, to interact with humans who were struggling and had needs and wants that wasn't his expectation of the day. He rearranged his schedule in his life to do something about it. It is an inescapable New Testament reality that God freely shares his power with his sons and daughters. And of course, many times God uses prolonged waiting and even withholds power, it feels like, to form something essential in the inner life of somebody who's praying. But at the same time, God shakes the temple floor beneath the feet of a gathered church praying for stuff. Right? He causes the paralyzed to stand. Right? He heals the sick. He frees addicts. He delivers the demonized. He throws open the cell doors of those who are imprisoned. God still moves at the heart of his people. Jesus concludes one of his teachings on prayer with this in Matthew 7, 9 through 11. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Right? As an illustration of God's heart towards us and our asking, Jesus offers the image of a father who likes to give his kids what they need and what they want. In our world of such obvious brokenness, of so many needs and so many things happening around us that we want God to intervene in, God enjoys not only redeeming all those wrongs, but giving us good gifts. There are days you know, as, a, as a pastor that I've had to be just face-to-face with everything that's wrong in the world. I've, I've had crazy opportunities to be in Thailand with, uh, like, trying to help rescue women out of sex slavery and just seeing all that is wrong happening right before my eyes. But I also remember that I, there is, years ago, I, I had this just emotionally, spiritually draining day of, of my life um, in ministry. You know, as I was a youth pastor in a really small town, and our town had this crazy series of tragic deaths among students um, that were in middle school, high school age. Within this one school year, multiple students had died. Um, one student passed away from an illness he was born with, um, just happened to happen that year. Uh, there was a hunting accident where a student accidentally shot his friend and his friend died. A uh, firework accident that resulted in a student death and a car accident not too much longer that took the lives of several students. And um, I had a good relationship with the, the school. And so after every single one of these, I was able to go in and do grief counseling and um, walk, you know, just alongside some of these students. And what was really hard about it is all of those friends, all of those things that happened all affected the same group of friends at the school. They were the ones that they were closest to. And unfortunately, that group of friends were, you know, considered the rough kids. Right, who at best maybe had single-parent homes um, filled with drugs and alcohol. They had been pro- profiled by our small-town cops. They were mistreated by the teachers who I believe wanted the best for them but didn't have the capacity to help them beyond what they could. They were kind of tossed out of the mainstream society of our small town, labeled as misfits and not worth it. And I'd become pretty close to these students over this year of talking to them through some of the worst moments of their lives. And some of them had started to come to our youth group. And um, so I just saw them over and over again. And towards the end of the school year, after that last tragic event happened, 
you know, I was trying to help these students to grieve and to, to walk through the emotions that I could barely handle and understand. Praying with these non-believing students, crying with them, getting angry alongside them, listening to them pour out everything that was going on. And I went home really empty and really hurting, really frustrated with all that was wrong in the world, you know? Frustrated with the unknown of why did God allow this to happen and what felt like unheard prayers. Disgusted with the way these students were treated right in front of all of these other things going on in our world. And I, I walked in the door and uh, Victoria knows how to, to get me to do things and that's to send my daughters to come and ask me for stuff. And uh, I walked in the door and uh, Emma said, Dad, can we go get ice cream? I'm like, of course we can go get ice cream. Right? In the midst of all that was wrong and everything that I felt that needed fixed in the world, I still want to give my kid ice cream. Right? A good gift. I love to say yes to my kids. Right? When I can. And even more so when it gives me something as well that fills my soul. You know, it makes it a little bit easier. Well, God's exactly the same. Right? He loves writing injustice. He, he loves restoring the broken and redeeming all that's lost. But he also finds so much goodness in giving good gifts to his children because he enjoys you. Just ask for all those things. God cares. God wants to hear it. From the smallest thing to the biggest thing in your life, ask God for it. It's all he wants from us. Right? It's so freeing that in the middle of a prayer about heaven coming to earth, right, struggling against evil, Jesus throws out something as common as today's lunch. Right, so the best way we can honor him is by bringing him our everyday, ordinary requests, knowing that he treasures those things all the same as the rest of that prayer. And so in just a moment, we're going to turn on some quiet music. And uh, we're going to ask for God to, to meet our needs. Right? And I want to challenge you guys to especially ask for the thing that you think is too small to ask God for. Right, to, to be very specific in it as well. Right? Be vulnerable enough and specific enough that God has a chance to disappoint you or surprise you. Right? Ask boldly with enough of that empowerment that you wonder if you're even allowed to be that forward with God. Right? Could you imagine Moses standing before God and said, God, don't you remember who you are? What a kind of statement is that to God? Right, but that's the boldness and the empowerment that we have in prayer to go before God and say, God, don't you remember that you're a provider? And then ask for what we need. Keep it real, keep it specific, keep it short so that it avoids becoming lofty. Don't use the weird language, right? You don't want a bush of protection, you want a wall, right? And don't give God excuses. Let's pray.
Lord, we just thank you for who you are, God. We call on your character of provider, of healer, of um, restorer. God, that you would hear. We know that you heard all of these prayer requests, but God, that you would be moved with compassion, that you would be stirred to act, Lord. God, that we would see you come and, and do amazing things, God, in us, around us, Lord, that um, through our prayers, that the world around us will be changed, God. That through our prayers, that you would be glorified and that, that we would be moved with gratitude. And I pray that you would be with us today. God, that we would see your hand move in our lives and the lives of those we interact with, God. And God, that we would leave here not afraid to ask you of anything. But we would ask you for everything in our lives, God. And that we would see it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, go and ask God today.